This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. How can we talk about free will in the multiverse, a universe with infinite copies of ourselves? At its core, freedom means being able to make a personal, conscious decision about your own behavior. Freedom means choosing your own path out of poverty. Human imagination is our greatest freedom. For indigenous people, freedom is self-determination. It originally meant the power to rule, and in a democracy, the power to rule and be ruled as an equal. With our colleagues across the campus, the Division of Arts and Humanities at the University of California, San Diego, presents Degrees of Freedom, An extraordinary public lecture series featuring six unique perspectives on what it means to be free. Well, it's a great pleasure to introduce to you Professor Nancy Pastero. She's an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology. Professor Pastero came to this position by a rather unconventional route. You know, most of us finish undergraduate school, and then we just go on to graduate school, and these days you do four or five postdocs, and then if you're very lucky, you get an academic position. Um, she finished with a degree in psychology and human biology at Stanford, went on and got a law degree in Arizona, went on to practice law for a number of years, human rights law primarily, then had a highly successful career as a journalist and helped to produce a number of programs with NPR. Now, I try to imagine this next conversation. Mom, Dad, guess what? I decided to quit my job as a lawyer and successful journalist to get a PhD in anthropology. (laughs) But she did, and the rest is history at UC Berkeley, and she has been with us here, we're lucky to have her, since 2001. She's the author of Now We Are Citizens, Indigenous Politics in Post-Multicultural Bolivia, and tonight her topic is Indigenous Rights in Latin America, What kinds of freedom do they offer? So please join me in welcoming to the podium Professor Nancy Pastero. Good evening. Thanks uh, for uh, inviting me. It's a pleasure to come talk to this audience. Uh, We were just saying it's such a different thing than looking out at 400 undergrads who are texting and don't want to be there. So it's really a pleasure (laughs) to have you all here. Um, And Steve, what I actually told my mother is, look, I promise this is the last one. I'm not going on to med school after this. (laughs) So... um, (laughs) So um, tonight I'm going to be talking about indigenous rights in Latin America. Um, The last 30 years in Latin America has been marked by the struggle of indigenous peoples. From the Andes to the Amazon, indigenous people have emerged as important political actors, calling attention to the exclusions that continue to mark the democracies in which they live. Since the 1980s, indigenous peoples have demanded their right to political participation, pressuring nation states to broaden their understandings of democracy. They've demanded self-determination and the freedom to make their own decisions about their forms of government and lands. They've used the classic tools of citizenship, the media, nonviolent protests like you see here in Bolivia, and more and more, uh, they've been using the ballot box. And here you see a rally for South America's first indigenous president, Evo Morales of Bolivia, now in his third term. But they've also used another important tool, human rights. Especially when the governments of their states have participated in exclusion or violence against them, indigenous groups have turned to the international institutions of human rights for help or visibility. 
So tonight I want to trace the struggles of indigenous rights in Latin America and to see what sorts of freedoms indigenous peoples are imagining and demanding. What do citizenship and human rights offer for their struggles? While both of these frameworks have been of use, I conclude that in most cases, indigenous peoples are still searching for self-determination. And this has led to a new stage in indigenous political process, the movement to decolonize society. I'll be describing this new movement, focusing on Bolivia, the country where this tendency is most developed. I argue that, in theory at least, decolonization does offer some alternative visions of justice and freedom. It's no, by no means a panacea, but it does offer a new framework from which to struggle for freedom. So let me begin with some basics for those of you who don't know much about Latin America or its indigenous peoples. First, who in the world are these indigenous peoples I'm going to be talking about? So when the Europeans arrived in the Americas in the 1500s, scholars estimated that there were about 100 million people on the continent. They found incredible civilizations, and you can see here from the Aztecs to the Incas to the many millions of people in the, in the Americas, they found these incredible civilizations that absolutely amazed them. First-hand accounts of the men who accompanied Cortez into what is now Mexico City marveled, saying it was more beautiful than any capital in Europe. But within 100 years, 90% of the continent's people were dead from a combination of disease, violent labor practices, and war. The rest were enslaved, forced to provide labor, lands, and tribute to the conquerors. And so it's their descendants who are indigenous peoples today, probably around 10% of the current population of Latin America. Of course, many people uh, are the descendants of intermarriage between um, uh, Native Americans and Europeans. Um, it's, the, uh, it's, the, it's the descendants of these uh, survivors that we're going to be talking about today. In some countries... Um, you, this map you can see sort of the amount of millions is in the white box and the percentage of the population. In some countries like Brazil, indigenous people make up a tiny minority, so less than 1%. In others like Mexico, Peru, or Ecuador, they are minorities but with significant numbers and cultural impact. In some, like Bolivia where I work, or Guatemala, they are majorities, um, varying sometimes between 40, 60, 70 percent, depending on the census. So these numbers have huge, huge kind of margins of error, but none, nonetheless they give you the idea of the importance and the, uh, the, the numbers of people we're talking about. So when you hear the word indigenous, what do you think about? Do you think about um, these sorts of images of indigenous people with feathers, um, fierce warriors, do you think more about the kinds of um, beautiful, exotic beaches and lost places that you imagine indigenous people to live in? Do you think about them as the producers of the beautiful textiles that many of us cover our offices and homes in? Do you think about them as people who practice these old cultural practices, um, like Eat, chewing coca in Bolivia or dan making uh, you know, beautiful masks or, or dancing? Do you share the idea that indigenous people are shamans with ancient wisdom and knowledge of medicinal plants like we often see in the movies? Part of the reason why we might imagine indigenous peoples this way is because of a widely held discourse or a way of thinking or representing things. In this discourse, indigenous peoples are represented as exotic others different from and opposed to the West and modernity. In this dominant view, and Indians live in rural villages. They're childlike, they're close to nature, and they continue to enact cultures that we call traditional. While these can take very positive valences, the idea of the noble or beautiful savage, they can also take negative and very racist valences, like seeing Indians as backwards or lazy or even dangerous. Scholars have demonstrated that this way of seeing Indians was itself a tool that justified colonialism and the paternalistic and exploitative relations that accompanied it. So I want to begin by making clear that indigenous people aren't just the, re the remnants of the past, but they're active, modern people who are using their cultural values to make new histories. So yes, there are Indians in the forests, 
um, like these Ecuadorian, Amazonian indigenous people, but there are also many, many Indians in, in cities. They're merchants. They're the economic engine of the countries in which they live. They're, they're political actors. They're teachers. They're, they're just like us. Uh, in Bolivia, where I work, um, they, they are highly organized, and they have um, been some of the most important political actors in, in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Um, indigenous peoples have formed a dominant political party. They have won election to Congress and the presidency, and here's once again Evo Morales, the new president of Bolivia. And they held a constitutional convention, rewriting the constitution to refound the country. Here's a picture from the Constituent Assembly in 2006 and till 8. So we start with the idea of indigenous people as active modern actors. But who are they? Who counts as indigenous? In the United States, this question has long been answered by sort of biological accounting, that is what is called the blood quantum. The U.S. government as trustee and I think some uh, tribes of uh, uh, indigenous Native Americans determines who can be enrolled in tribes by looking at a genealogy and a heritage. You count, you're enrolled if you have the right percentage of Native American blood. And of course this is a, a, a matter of great angst and deb debate amongst Native Americans here in the United States as this art piece from Alaska makes clear. In Latin America, though, such biological measures are really not the, the sort of thing that, that, that people use to define themselves as indigenous. That's not to say that biology is absent. Often you might see white people who will say that they are of pure European blood, or indigenous people who might say that they are of, of the raza indígena, the indigenous race. But for the most part, identification as indigenous is based on other factors, language, dress, shared history, cultural values, um, cultural practices. And what this means is that the line between who is and who isn't indigenous is very blurry and can change over time. So the same person who might be seen as an indigenous person in their home village, speaking their native language, wearing homespun clothes, might be seen as a mestizo or a mestiza when she moves to the city and goes to work every day wearing Western-style clothes, and vice versa. This blurriness means that identity is a complex and unclear matter. On the one hand, it's partly a matter of ascription. That means certain people ascribing indigenous identity on the basis of physical and economic markers. So this is, of course, one way that racism and exclusion operate, as people are categorized as Indians because they're poor or uneducated or live in rural areas. On the other hand, identity is also a matter of self-identification. You are indigenous if you self-identify as such. There's a very rich literature on this complex matter, and we can talk about it more in questions if you want after the talk, but I just wanted to start off by sort of a little bit identifying who indigenous people are and how you decide who, uh, what that means. So what are indigenous people struggling for? In the colonial period, I told you about, Spanish colonizers demolished local forms of society and government. They took land and resources, and they forced local people to serve them as laborers, servants, mistresses and tribute payers. The riches that they, that they claimed, especially the gold and silver from America's mines, fueled the Industrial Revolution, which led Europe into prosperity, but left the native peoples in a position of structural inequality that they're still fighting to overcome. Over the following centuries, the beneficiaries of this system, the Latin American elite, continued to exploit indigenous peoples, but through very different measures, different means, legal systems that have made inequality seem natural, not unlike the apartheid system in South Africa or the Jim Crow laws here in the United States. So since the colonial era, Indians have been resisting oppression for ever since that time through outright rebellion, as in the Age of Insurrection in 1791, when huge armies of Andean natives, led by Tupac Amaru from Peru and Tupac Katari from Bolivia, almost overcame the Spanish in Peru and Bolivia. Um, so these sorts of colonial uprisings happened all the way through, or through endless legal suits to uh, retain their lands. In many parts of the continent, they have managed to hold on to parts of their original communal lands against all odds. Often they've done so because their lands are remote, in forested areas, or high in the Andes like this picture from Ecuador, or were seemingly of very little value. But in contemporary times, however, these remote lands are under new threats because of the natural resources they hold, precisely because these are these regions of refuge, these are the areas that are under threat now. They hold minerals, natural gas, 
They, are, they have rivers that might bear hydroelectric dams or forests to be logged. So in most places in Latin America, the state holds the subsoil rights and can grant concessions to transnational corporations to exploit them without the permission of the owners of the land. Thus, one of the key demands for indigenous peoples is land. They want to control their territories and make decisions about how they're held and how they're developed. They argue that land is the basis of their spirituality or cosmovision. And this is a word that I refer to or I use to refer to their understanding of the relationship between humans, non-humans, and the universe. They think that land shouldn't be held as a, as a commodity uh, for sale to the highest bidder. Contrary to Western notions of private property, many indigenous people want their lands to be held collectively, especially for the indigenous people who are minorities and who live in rural areas then. Their demand is for protection and autonomy. But as we saw, indigenous people don't just live in forests. 80% of the continent's population lives in cities, and a huge majority of indigenous people do also. So what demands are they making? Well, they want to be included in the political process, to be able to elect their leaders, to determine what sort of society we li they live in. They want recognition of their languages and their culture. That is, they want full citizenship, not just protection. So where they are in the minority, majority, rather, they also often want to be able to exercise their own forms of justice, their own uh, so uh, social rules, their norms, and to elect their own leaders according to what's called usos y costumbres, or custom and tradition. So it's really important to recognize that there are just as many different, just as there are many forms of indigeneity, there are also many differing indigenous movements with differing interests. Indigenous rights means different things to each, and freedom does too. But if I had to boil it down, and Shannon from UCSD TV asked me to be able to boil it down at some point, and I thought about it quite a bit, I would say that the term that probably unites all these different groups is self-determination. They want the same sorts of freedom all of us want, to be agentive actors. And here I'm using the academic term agency to refer to actors who can determine the courses of their own lives according to their own values and histories. So as we go through, we'll think about what self-determination means in the contemporary moment. So I now want to turn to thinking about how indigenous actors have gone about trying to achieve these rights. To do that, I want to talk to you about two really very different frameworks, citizenship on the one hand and human rights on the other. Most histories of citizenship and human rights blend the two and start off with the Enlightenment notions of natural law and the rights of man that emerged in the late 18th century as part of liberalism. Now here I'm using liberalism not in the way we do today, like liberal versus conservative, but I'm referring to the political philosophy called liberalism which emerged in the Enlightenment period. Liberal notions of humanity are based on the idea that all people are created equal and endowed with rights on the basis of their rationality and their humanity, their human dignity. <clears throat> Excuse me. These rights of man were expressed most clearly in the French and American declarations of rights that you see here, uh, which became the foundational ideas for modern liberal society. And freedom in this liberal vision has two sides, negative freedoms, that is freedom from, like for state violence, and positive freedoms, freedom to live according to one's own values with all that's necessary to do so. To do so. In the dominant genealogy, these ideas culminated in the post-World War II Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which we see here being held by our own beloved Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, the Declaration drew on the language of rights of man, but added to it, grafting social justice onto this already existing tree of liberal li liberty and laying the foundations for an international regime of human rights. That regime of rights was briefly interrupted during the Cold War when the great powers used human rights as a tool against each other in their geopolitical struggles, but it resumed in the current era blossoming into what Levy and Schneider call a cosmopolitan morality in which the international community protect, protects people from the horrors of genocide and oppression. So this is the general perspective that most of us have, I think, of human rights, that the long road from colonial oppression and exploitation has led to modernity and has culminated in an international regime of justice and human rights for all. Well, I'm going to trouble that 
that, um, that uh, genealogy, that history, just a little bit, using the work of historian Samuel Moyne, who gives us a, a very different and quite interesting view, I think. He argues that the rights of man emerged in a particular moment of insurrection against the monarchy, and that despite the language of universality in them, the French and American declarations were essentially proclamations of national sovereignty, not, not universal morality and wonderful great ideas of protection, but rather this is about sovereignty. They were, uh, they were rights of man and citizen. They established citizenship rights and not human rights and were based not in morality but in revolutionary politics. Similarly, he argues, the, un the United Nations emerged after World War II not as a protector of individual rights, as we often think, but as a bastion of national sovereignty rights. The goal was international peace based on inviolable uh, national sovereignty. Perhaps most provocatively, Moyne argues that the Universal Declaration of Rights was dead at birth, and that's his quote, because it really didn't help resolve the pressing questions of the day. For the great powers, it didn't help them in the debates between their conflicting utopias of capitalism versus socialism. For the huge majority of people under, the, under colonial rule, it didn't address the, the big questions that they were thinking about, self-determination and racial, racial justice. For them, the vague notions of human rights in the Declaration were not as important as gaining freedom from their imperial masters. And neither the Universal Declaration nor the UN Charter called for self-determination. Moyne shows how during the following decades, the decolonizing world eventually pushed the international community to include self-determination into the idea of human rights. And it's, it is the first article in the 1966 Covenant on Economic, <laughs> Social, and Cultural Rights. But even then, he argues, this modified version of human rights was still very deeply entrenched in the framework of citizenship and the nation state. What decolonization referred to at this moment was not to the recognition of rights of minority peoples within nation states, what we might think of as internal autonomy, but rather independence from colonial powers and the establish of, establishment of new nation states. So one example was Vietnam, which was struggling from independence from France. Its leader, Ho Chi Minh, made a very famous speech in 1945 in which he began with the famous words from the, universe, the U.S. Declaration of Independence about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and ended saying his country deserved the same right to be free and, an, an, and a, a free and independent country. Moyne says that the international regime of human rights that we all assume in the, as present now actually did finally begin to develop, but not until the 1970s, when the previous universal utopias like national sovereignty, socialism, etc., proved unable, unable to prevent oppression. He says that the Cold War showed the dangers of national sovereignty and that the decolonization movement of the 1960s faded a little bit as liberation movements devolved into corruption and authoritarianism. He suggests that in this gap, human rights emerged as a new, limited, kind of minimalist utopia, a tool activists could use to defend individual rights. They asserted that, their, that human rights were not political, not revolutionary. And you see here, this is uh, some of the early Amnesty International um, activists. And they, in this period, they framed their work as issues of morality and conscience rather than revolution. So here we see human rights emerging in a sphere that's totally separate from national citizenship as a way for international actors to protect people on the basis of their humanity rather than their political interests or their identities. So where do indigenous rights fit, fit into all this story? I place indigenous rights precisely in the gap between citizenship and human rights. Indians were poor, persecuted, and lacked political access in their home countries. While they considered themselves nations or peoples, they were excluded from the nation-state system that had been set up. So over the last three decades, indigenous peoples have, been tr have tried two separate strategies. At the national levels, they've pushed for greater citizenship rights, and at the international level, they've sought rights through the international regime, particularly of human rights. And these two struggles were happening at the same, same time and influenced each other. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about how both of those work. So first, let's talk about what was going on at the national levels. 
Starting in the 1980s, indigenous groups across the continent began organizing, often with the help of anthropologists and non-governmental organizations. And this is a slide from the multicultural years of 19, uh, in the 1980s in Bolivia when there were a lot of marches. And in response to, to, you know, to, to this sort of organizing, to making demands, to calling upon the states for citizenship rights, many countries in Latin America did implement constitutional reforms, expanding citizenship rights a little bit, especially enabling local political participation. They recognized indigenous rights to language and, and culture, and they institutionalized some very limited collective rights to, ter to territories. These rights were called neoliberal multiculturalism, quite a mouthful, because they were carried out at the height of the neoliberal or free trade period and were enacted as part of a new form of governance that linked market liberalization on the one hand to expanded democratic participation. I studied this period in Bolivia, living and working with the Guaranis peoples of the lowlands. And the title of my first book, Now We Are Citizens, comes from a Guarani friend who shared the hopes of those reforms to really feel included as citizens. Yet, ultimately, the reforms proved very disappointing. While this model did recognize indigenous people as having distinct cultures, it didn't respond to the underlying question of self-determination. Like many other indigenous groups, my Guarani friends tried to participate in municipal political processes, but since their structural positions hadn't substantially changed, they really had very little power against the white mestizo political, excuse me, political parties. They didn't get to enact their own forms of government, but instead they were invited to compete, to try to compete with the elite political class with centuries of advantage over them. Anthropologist Charles Hale concludes that the multicultural recognition regime accepted difference, but only when indigenous practices didn't really challenge much, only when it didn't challenge the sovereignty of the nation state or, more importantly, global capitalism. And this benefited a certain group of indigenous peoples, those who conformed, what he, who he termed the indios permitidos, or authorized Indians. And it sanctioned those uh, indigenous groups who didn't. So despite the importance of having gained some really important forms of recognition at the national level, in the best of cases, indigenous peoples in this period were only slightly able to modify liberalism, forcing the very strict individualist notions to give way a little bit to some collective rights, but always within the constraints of neoliberal economic reforms, which effectively privilege multicultural corporations over local indigenous rights. So at the same time, indigenous peoples formed an international movement to seek solutions from the international human rights system. Initially, indigenous groups were pretty skeptical about the whole idea of human rights because it was clear that they were based in liberal European ideas like individualism and universalism that most indigenous people saw as linked to imperialism or colonialism. And at the beginning, their arguments about self-determination fell on deaf ears in the, at the international level. They were strongly opposed by the powerful nations who saw indigenous rights as threats to national sovereignty, right? The whole, the whole basis of the, of the international system. But in the 70s and 80s, indigenous groups began to use human rights conventions and human rights organizations to demand self-determination not as a right to form their own nation states. So they weren't seeking statehood. That would be, it was clear that that was too threatening as, the, as, as in the 60s, but as a limited right based on the human right to culture. And this is a new development, the idea of a human right to culture. This reinforces Moyne's argument, I think, that this was just the moment when human rights were being transformed from something revolutionary into something very apolitical, into a, a mechanism of uh, a, a, an apolitical mechanism. Legal scholar Karen Engel demonstrates how in the 1980s in the Working Group on Indigenous Population at the UN's International Labor Organization, the ILO, and in other fora, indigenous people began with questions of recognition and cultural rights like language, religion, and customs, rights that weren't perceived to be very threatening to sovereignty. And then slowly they began linking these rights to demands for territory, arguing that they couldn't practice their traditional customs without traditional territory. This strategy was pretty successful in certain ways. This new human right to culture was codified in the most important human rights documents of the era, like the ILO's Convention 169, which was signed by most countries in the region, and that makes the, that makes their, the, the rights in the convention part of the national laws. We can also see some of those rights in the, in the recent 2007 UN Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. 
And relying on these texts, indigenous communities were sometimes successful in defending their lands and their territories against the challenges of natural resource exploitation, what we widely call extractivism, as well as colonization. Perhaps the most famous case was the Awastingni case in Nicaragua, where the Inter-American Court of Human Rights held the Nicaraguan state had violated the rights of the local peoples by giving concessions to loggers and ordered the the state to grant title to 275 square miles of of territory. But this was the rare case uh, where where these rights accomplished such a, a great result. Engel also calls attention to the dark sides of the human rights strategy. And she points to think three problems that I'll briefly identify. The first is that it falls back onto these essentialisms that reiterate the, the stereotypes of indigenous peoples, like the ones we, dis- we discussed earlier, that they're close to nature and different from the rest of citizens. And this, you know, honestly can produce racism. It limits the forms of land tenure and sometimes authorizes the state to manage these collective lands under the norms, excuse me, of protection. So instead of promoting the kinds of autonomy and freedom that indigenous peoples were calling for, sometimes they just ended up getting the equivalent of reservations. And finally, she argues that there's a risk of limiting productive options to what's called ethno-development, like tourism or folklore. While this might be a great option for some groups, it might not be others. What if they want to use their lands for cattle ranching or soybean production or whatever? Uh, That doesn't seem to fall into the human right to culture. I want to add another possible dark side. I think that relying on human rights can have a really dangerous effect in that it characterizes indigenous people as the victims of human rights violations, as opposed to the protagonists of social change, which my, you know, my Guarani friends don't want to be considered victims. They, want to, they are active you know, actors out there trying to change their country, and, and somehow being put into the role of victim is very uncomfortable. All four of these concerns, I think, are part of the same observation, that to benefit from a legal or rights regime, one has to be what we in the academic world call a subject of that regime. That is, one has no choice but to participate in the structural relations of that regime. So, as various scholars have explained, the human rights narrative contains within it a set of relations and related actors, right? There's the victim, the perpetrator, the beneficiary, and the savior. Victims are those who have suffered atrocities directly, especially on their suffering bodies. And to make claims of being a victim, you have to enact that role as a victim and testify to your powerlessness. Legal scholar Makao Matua argues that this can basically just reenact and reinforce the same old colonial relationships, especially when the saviors, who are mostly white, educated and powerful cosmopolitans administer the human rights apparatus in Geneva or wherever it is to save the mostly non-Western, mostly poor victims of savage states and, and human rights violations. So by the end of the 20th century, indigenous intellectuals and other scholars had grown increasingly frustrated with the impossible task of perfecting liberalism as Povinelli terms it, either through expanded citizenship or international human rights protections. Over the last decade, especially in Bolivia, we've entered into a new era of indigenous rights thinking called decolonization. As we saw earlier, this term was originally used to signify national independence from colonial power, like the decolonization movement of the 60s. In the contemporary movement, though, the term draws attention to the deep wound that colonialism has left in Latin American societies, which has not really been healed by the liberal nation state. And it reminds us that all settler states, including ours, were founded in genocide and still contain a genocidal logic nested within the contemporary forms of sovereignty. Let me explain what I mean by that seemingly incendiary statement. Historian Robert Meister argues that in nation states founded in settler colonialism, like ours, like most of Latin America, the claim of settlers to self-determination was at fundamental odds with the parallel claim that could have been made on behalf of the aboriginal peoples. Using the classic example of the United States, he describes how Thomas Jefferson clearly understood that independence from Great Britain would require the removal or the elimination of Native American peoples and their erasure as nations, as as peoples. Why? Because under the liberal model, there's only one sovereign power, the nation state. That that is, there is one nation, 
Karen under God, but, but not many nations under God. Thus, Meister suggests that we must understand the principles of independence of 19, 1776 as the foundational expressions of both liberalism and settler colonialism. And he says, genocide then is the dark side of democracy. So here we see what Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben calls the state of exception. And pardon me, I'm going to take you on a brief theoretical tour. Um, Agamben argues that the sovereignty of nations is based on the power to utilize law to exclude certain members, using the laws of emergency to place certain people outside the law, reducing them to what he calls bare life, a very dramatic Term. His iconic case for his argument is uh, one that you won't be surprised by, the Nazi concentration camps. But we can think of many other examples. The Japanese internment camps might be the closest, uh, closest to home here in California, where United States citizens were stripped of their citizenship rights in World War II as a result of racist fears in times of emergency or war. But remember, there was never a single bit of evidence produced against the thousands of Japanese Americans who were imprisoned. Agamben argues that we are now in a permanent state of exception, where at any moment the state may reduce people to bare life by framing circumstances as an emergency. And I think Guantanamo is certainly the very best evidence for, for this argument. So looking at the indigenous case, we can say that through the liberal legal systems established to support nation-state sovereignty, indigenous peoples, along with African slaves, were continuously placed outside of humanity, reduced to bare life, excluded from national imaginaries and regimes of citizenship and law. And in all of these cases, the settlers used laws to justify their acts creating separate legal categories for Indians and Africans. And here you see contracts making people into commodities. What decolonization activists point out is that this continues despite decades of inclusion and constitutional reforms. As recent examples across the continent show, states continue to exercise their sovereign discretion to, de to, to, not, excuse me, to deny indigenous groups the right to have rights. Perhaps the most egregious example these days is that of Chile, um, where the state has charged Mapuche activists struggling to defend their territory as terrorists, invoking exceptional terrorism laws that authorize pretrial incarceration, limited due process, and extremely long sentences. The state denies them the civil rights that other citizens have. This fall, uh, the International, excuse me, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights held that Chile had indeed violated the human rights of Mapuche indigenous activists and freed several activists from their very lengthy jail terms. So it's cases like this that convince indigenous actors that the laws and rights of the liberal nation state are often used as tools to exclude or silence them and to reduce them to the sort of bare life that requires them to make human rights claims in the international arena. Thus, here we see that troubled gap between citizenship and human rights. When the state of exception kicks in, which it inevitably does according to indigenous people's experience, then human rights is the fallback tool. And it's this relentless cycle that decolonization activists are hoping to end. So what then is decolonization? The new decolonization movement focuses instead on recognizing and excising the continued colonial and Western legacies within their societies and states. In this view, the liberal nation state is a vestige of colonialism. And what activists are holding this view or trying to do is to seek another form of justice, another form of freedom. So what might that freedom look like? Well, there are several overlapping lines of thought that come together in the Bolivian decolonization movement. And I put these posters up because you can see that, well, if you speak Spanish, <laughs> you can see that there's a, there are just a lot of debates going on in Bolivia about this coming from these different angles. So the first line is a very local perspective coming from Bolivian indigenous intellectuals and others who think about decolonization as the necessary overturning of foreign control over native lands. Aymara intellectual Pedro Portugal personifies this trend, arguing that decolonization is, quote, the process by which the peoples who were stripped of their self-government by the foreign invasion recuperate their self-determination. You can see this is a very blunt, very political approach focused on taking control of state and territory. 
A second important line of thought comes from subaltern studies, which focuses on the revolutionary decolonizing efforts of other formerly decolonized countries, colonized countries like India and Algeria. A key influence for this perspective is the well-known writer Franz Fanon, who argued that decolonization was an inherently violent process through which the entire society would have to be transformed and new decolonized subjects would be born. This focus on the subjectivity of the colonized then calls on the colonized subjects themselves to decolonize themselves and their ways of thinking. So it's a much more of a cultural, psychological um, uh, form of, of, of politics. A third important line of thought is postcolonial studies and its focus on the relationship between power, knowledge, and culture. And scholars in this school point out how colonial forms of domination obscured indigenous ways of thinking and knowing, privileging Western categories and epistemologies instead. So this critique calls for a rethinking of Western ideas that underlie Latin American societies, and especially the binaries between nature and culture that underlie capitalism and development. So this vision of decolonization is especially influential for those concerned about the environment and global climate change, as they suggest that indigenous visions of the relationship between humans and non-humans, between humans and the, and the planet, the, the Mother Earth, can form the basis of a new sustainable ways of living, which in in Latin America is called vivir bien, or living well. In Bolivia, these three things all come together in, in a larger debate, which is whether the state can be the site of this transformative process. Under the leadership of indigenous president Evo Morales, Bolivia's constituent assembly rewrote the constitution, as I said, refounding the country as a plurinational state and dictating a series of rights for its indigenous originary and peasant peoples. They use the term plurinational to call attention to the plural nature of Bolivia's peoples, but they also are trying to differentiate this form of inclusion from multiculturalism. Multiculturalism is, uh, as I, I talked about a little bit earlier, is, is an invitation to all indigenous peoples to participate as citizens. Pluriculturality is supposedly goes beyond this to recognize the sovereignty of all the different nations of, of of indigenous peoples in the country and to allow new forms of self-government. The Constitution also, it's an amazingly beautiful and utopian document, also requires that the state's development model be based on indigenous notions of vivir bien or living well, a sort of sustainable development model, and declares decolonization as the fundamental goal of the state. So the question of whether the state can in fact decolonize itself has been hotly debated, as you can imagine, with critics arguing that trying to use the power of the liberal state to reorder society is an inherently colonial move that really does nothing to alter the nature of state power. Morales and his government, on the other hand, insist that by making coloniality visible in all its aspects, the state can construct a just society. They claim, in fact, to be enacting just that sort of decolonization. But... It, lots of people disagree. At the 2006 Constituent Assembly, the Pacto Unidad, or the Unified Pact, an indigenous alliance that cons uh, who's widely considered to be the architects of the plurinational state, proposed revolutionary forms of government based on direct participation, self-government, and indigenous communal values and decision-making. But their version was really watered down in the process of the Constituent Assembly, and particularly in the negotiations with the right-wing opposition after the, the, the Constituent Assembly ended. And this led, leads the Pacto, along with many other dissenters, to claim that the new Bolivian state, for all its beautiful utopian discourse in the, in the Constitution, is really just a reformed version of the old colonial and liberal state. Okay, so what can we make of these debates? What can the decolonization move, movement show us, and how's it working out in practice? Before I answer those questions, I want to just take us right back for just a moment to the gap between those two frameworks that I've been talking about all night. I hope I've convinced you that for indigenous people, neither citizenship or human rights has offered them a sufficient mechanism for obtaining the forms of self-determination or freedom that they want. Nevertheless, I want to suggest that that awkward space between these two frameworks has actually been a very productive space from which to call attention to injustice and to formulate new visions of, of freedom. The French theorist Jacques Rancière argues that the gap between the human and the citizen is not a void. It's not a paradox, as it, as it may seem. Instead, he sees this space as a, state, as a space for disagreements, a dispute over who has rights and who doesn't. 
And his model of politics, which is very interesting if you haven't read it, it's through disagreement that those excluded from society come into being as political subjects. In a sort of counterintuitive argument, he says that political subjects use rights to create a scandal about the denial of rights that they suffer. So using rights, they say, hey, we don't have rights. It's kind of counterintuitive, but I think that's precisely what we're seeing in the last couple of decades of indigenous organizations. They've used both citizenship and human rights as a platform to imagine and articulate a different version and vision of freedom and self-determination that has always remained just out of reach. So then what about the decolonization movement? Has it brought that vision into reach? My answer is a typically Bolivian one, todavía, not yet. Um, while the, movement to, the move to decolonize has produced many important changes, for most Bolivians I would say decolonization remains a theory um, debated by intellectuals and activists. That's really not as important as, as feeding their children or finding work or um, you know, the, kind of the more important basic questions. And despite the utopian language in the Constitution, I think Bolivia has remained essentially a liberal state. It subordinates indigenous autonomy projects or sort of the idea of community self-government within the central state. And while indigenous people are empowered as never before, decision-making about the big questions like natural resource um, development remains firmly under the control of the central state. So whatever decolonization might produce if it, if it were implemented, it's not yet a reality. But what is clear is that decolonization has now become the new language of contention, to use Roseberry's famous phrase, meaning it's the new standard by which everything's evaluated. And this implies that it's a really important discourse now in Bolivia that everyone can use to create those scandals that, that Rancière suggests. So on the one hand, the government is using the discourse of decolonization to justify its agendas and its policies. Morales is a really savvy political performer, and he uses the symbols of indigeneity to claim the role of representative of all indigenous peoples and the whole decolonization project. This could be seen in his uh, pre-inauguration ceremony at Tiwanaku, an Andean um, archaeological site, in 2006. And here you can see him surrounded by um, Andean Aymara indigenous shamans called Amautas, invoking the idea of Pachacuti, the Andean notion of, of the cataclysm that will reverse the order of the world, um, Evo said, from resistance today we pass to power. Today we begin a new era for the original peoples of the world, a new life, a new millennium. The government has followed up with these, this sort of uh, language with by establishing a vice ministry of decolonization. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, and, and it organizes all kinds of interesting cultural spectacles, like this collective wedding of our identity, when th which um, 300 couples were brought together to be remarried in a, in a supposedly Andean, um, a new, uh, an invented new Andean uh, wedding ceremony. Uh, and Evo, the president, is the godfather, and here you can see him on the left. While many have critiqued these acts as essentializing or folkloric, and I have been one of those, um, they're also, I would say, very important for the indigenous people of Bolivia. It gives them a great deal of pride to see their ideas, their dress, their values, their customs elevated to the national level. The government also argues that their model of national development is a form of decolonization. And although it continues to be based on natural resource extraction, a great majority of the income comes from hydrocarbons, particularly natural gas, and shortly, lithium, the government has redistributed a substantial part in the form of cash transfers to children, women, and seniors, as well as payouts to local governments and universities. They say that instead of going only to the white and mestizo elites, as it did in the past, now the patrimony of the country goes to the people. So we can see how Morales is using this discourse of decolonization in the traditional way that nation states always do to create unity among divided populations. So we could say here that the discourse of decolonization can, can serve as a tool of state power. But we can also see how decolonization discourse has become a key tool for those opposing the government. The most remarkable case of this over the last few years is a controversy over a highway that the Morales government has tried to build through an indigenous territory and national park known by its acronym TIPNIS. 
The government refused to follow the dictates of the new constitution, which required prior consultation before any development, and that prompted a massive march, and here you can see the, the, the first march in 2011, um, by lowland indigenous community members who were protesting both the road and, probably more importantly, the government's failure to abide by the law and the new constitution. During the march, the national police violently intervened, firing tear gas and rubber bullets, injuring many of the marchers. And so the case became a site of national debate about the government's development project based on extracting natural resources and its abilities to protect indigenous people. And decolonization is at the center of this debate. Everyone's asking, is this how a decolonized state acts? Isn't this just another example of the state of exception that, that we talked about before? And many critics judge the government as being cynical, speaking about sustainable development and, and um, uh, based on indigenous values and the dangers of climate change on the one hand. The top picture is uh, from uh, a, an alternative climate change forum that Morales held in Bolivia a few years ago. And on the other hand, urging natural resource exploitation and industrialization as you see him here in the, in the bottom slides. So as you can see, decolonization is still a horizon rather than a reality. The huge tensions that exist between indigenous peoples and the state have not been resolved. The sacrifices of indigenous people in the name of development have not yet ended. But decolonization does offer a new point of departure for their struggle, I think. And I want to conclude by stressing that the, what I think is really important, that the terms of the debate have changed radically as a result of this new way of thinking. Indigenous people no longer need to take the position of victims of violations of human rights or take the position of the authorized Indians hoping to compete in liberal political struggles. Instead, I think decolonization imagines indigenous peoples as protagonists demanding autonomy, self-determination, and freedom from a state of their own making. And I think it gives us all a vision from outside liberalism and from outside extractivist capitalist development from which to begin to imagine alternatives. So I'll leave you with some questions. What might development based on vivir bien or living well actually look like? What might belonging mean outside of the framework of citizenship or human rights? How might we forge new relationships with the planet? And what might freedom be from this new vantage point? Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.